Morning, everybody. Are we doing all right today? I can just sense that our church is uh, developing more muscle in the area of prayer, uh, just as we've entered this uh, season of 40 days, 24-7 prayer. Um, if you haven't signed up, it's not too late. I know there's some prayer slots, and it's really what we as a community uh, feel led to, uh, to push into. Hopefully after this morning, too. Um, it's just, it, honestly, like prayer is like breathing for a disciple. And I remember the early years of Crossroads, uh, the first couple of years, whether you know this or not, our church really shouldn't have survived. Um, we had some really, really difficult years. But through that difficulty, God taught us how to pray. And um, I just sensed, too, like in this season right now, we're, 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 we are relaunching our church. God's pushing hard things and, and, and difficult seasons into us, but he's using that uh, to kind of reteach us how to pray. And so, um, yeah, really, like if you haven't stepped into that, I really encourage you. Okay, uh, we are in Mark chapter 6 right now. And I just have to say, last week, I don't know how much Dan shared. Do you know I was supposed to preach? I, I literally um, woke up that morning. My wife, two days before, that had never been sicker, she literally could not get out of bed. I've never seen her like that, so we were doing the upstairs-downstairs thing. Um, but somehow, the bug got me uh, in the middle of the night, Saturday night. And I woke up, and it was like... I'm in the shower, literally, it's like 7 in the morning, and I'm just trying to just make it work. And you know when you're like, the water's so hot that it hurts your skin, but you're still cold, and you're shivering. And I don't think I really got out of bed the whole day that day. Uh, Dan, literally at 7.30, I gave him the phone call, and he's like, I got this. <laughs> and I'm just like, anyway. Okay, so Mark chapter 5, which we finished last week, there, there, there was a specific theme to Mark chapter 5. It's Jesus entering the unclean. Every culture has its categories of what's clean and unclean. Growing up, our family had one toothbrush. I never would have known that to be unclean until I got married. Um, What's wrong with one toothbrush? <laughs> Several weeks ago, I was at a restaurant and I was eating this really juicy hamburger. Of course, I'm not going to tell you the name of the restaurant. And I pulled out a long hair out of my mouth. Okay, but stop and think, what's unclean about that? I think COVID, too, this... this these last two years really brought us into the world of the Bible because, you know, you read the Old Testament and, you know, God's instructing quarantines, you know, for people who are unclean. And, you know, lockdowns, quarantines, protocols, all of those things the last two years, um, I think we have greater sensitivity. And a lot of it, you know, was over clean, unclean. Uh, I can't tell you how many times... I got scolded in restaurants even, um, especially the one across the river, but I'm not going to name it. Uh, put your mask up. I'm like, I'm eating my sandwich. 
Anyway. Can we joke about that yet, or should I just not say anything? <laughs> Too early, right? Ah, <laughs> oh, I'm so mad that I said all that. Here, here come the emails. <laughs> no. no. So in Jesus' day, places like the Decapolis were unclean. Demon possession, they didn't call it demon possession. They called it filled with an unclean spirit. Dead things, cemeteries, animals, dead animals, bodies were, were all considered unclean. To have a leprous condition or, or something like hemorrhaging uh, was unclean. So to be in any one of these states not only made you unclean, but if you would even touch anything that was in that particular state would also make you unclean. And so in Mark Chapter 5, Jesus going to Decapolis, the land of the expelled ones. His boat hits the shore where there's a cemetery and there's this demonized man running at them. I mean, this scene couldn't be more unclean. And then the lady who's hemorrhaging uh, when she touches him. And then he goes to Jairus' house and he takes the hand of, of his dead daughter. In all these instances, Jesus is touch, touch, touch. He's touching everything that's unclean, and it should be making Jesus unclean, but instead the opposite is happening. Jesus' touch turns all that's unclean, clean. And we're going to see, though, in the coming weeks, because this theme of unclean is going to continue, we're going to see the source of all unclean, and Jesus is going to say it's the human heart. So unclean is not just something, according to Jesus, that's out there, but it's something that's in here. And this is why John Wesley's hymn, uh, these words are so powerful. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. There is no one so dirty and sinful that Jesus' touch can't make them clean. Now today, uh, let's turn to Mark chapter 6, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. So Jesus left there and went to his hometown, we know this to be Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. And when Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? Wait a second, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Jesus would not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. This is God's word for right now. You can be seated. So Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth. The people that he grew up with, his family, his boyhood friends, and that first verse, uh, they're just amazed, they're wowed by him, and 
Specifically, it's Jesus' teaching, but it's also his miracles. I mean, they're just like, wow. But then just one verse later, it says they took offense at him. And we know from the other gospel accounts where they give more details, uh, this is when they try to throw Jesus off a cliff. They try to kill him. That's hate. Jesus offends them. Maybe this would be a good, a good place to actually ask this question, uh, who, who doesn't Jesus offend? <laughs> I mean, here he's offending the little people in the small town. We also know he offends the big shots in the big city. Here he offends family. Other places he offends non-family. He offends friends here. He offends his enemies. He offends Jews. He offends Romans, religious, irreligious. It's almost like Jesus offends everyone. I mean, read the Gospels. The world hates him. Jesus even says it. He says, the world hates me. The real Jesus will always offend. He will always confront. He, he, he will always mess with us. And I think the kind of Jesus that we want today is, is an inoffensive Jesus, a, a politically correct Jesus, a Jesus who fits nicely into our life, nicely into our culture, who is palpable to our world and because of this, I think sometimes we feel this need to kind of help Jesus out. So rather than allowing Jesus to do surgery on us, we actually start doing surgery on Jesus. We remove all those aspects of Jesus that uh, don't fit into our life or the way our culture thinks or the way that he might fit into our church. And in so doing, we, we, we water him down and... Um, Sometimes I think we just turn Jesus, and take no offense at this, because I loved Mr. Rogers growing up. I watched him almost every day. My brother did too. Uh, but we've turned Jesus into Mr. Rogers. But here's what I want to encourage us with. The fact that Jesus is so offensive is just further proof that he is God, because a Jesus who just kind of nicely fits into our lives and nicely fits into our world, nicely fits into our churches, is really probably just a God that we have fashioned and created according to our likeness. But just think, for, for, for God to be God, this, this being that is so beyond our world and, and so not of our world that that. When this God then breaks into our world, of course he should offend. Especially he should offend us in those places where we belong too much to our world. So Jesus is offensive. I think that's just something that we have to accept and be encouraged by it. And his offense is usually the most loving thing in the world. My question when I look at this text, it, it just says that... and they. They were offended by him. So then I'm thinking, okay, he's offensive. He's offensive to his family. He's offensive to his friends. I mean, this is his hometown. 
So how is he offensive to them? Well, have you ever been back to your hometown? You know, I have actually happened to do a lot of my growing up and maturing um, after I left my hometown. So now when I return to my hometown, uh, my hometown doesn't really know what to do with me, and I don't really blame them for that. Um, they want to kind of still keep me in that box, uh, you know, that, that I was when, when, when I was there, but I'm a different person now. Uh, I remember years ago, I spoke at my alma mater, South Christian, and I just spoke on like Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and, and, and to die is gain. And I remember even afterwards, like the students started clapping a little bit, and I found out week, weeks later that I had offended so many of the faculty, and I, I couldn't figure it out. And later I did figure it out. I should have known that landmine. Um, but... I didn't mean to offend, but I offended them. Nazareth at this time is, is, is just a small town, probably about 200 people. It's simple. It's rural. It's on the poor side of things. It's, it's why they say, you know, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? So imagine the excitement when they hear that Jesus is, is coming to town. And I can just imagine the synagogue is just, it's packed that day. And Jesus stands up and he, and, and he starts teaching. And I can just see what their minds are thinking. Wait a second, like this, this is Mary's son. I babysat that kid when he was a kid. I changed his diaper. I, I went to school with him. I did construction with him. And see, it's like as they're making all of these connections, it, it, it just dawns on them He's too ordinary. He's just one of us. And it's almost unpardonable to them that Jesus would be just like them. I mean, when they say this is Mary's son, in Jesus' day, you, you never referred to someone that way. You always referred to the, they're the son of this father. But see, everybody in this small village knew Jesus' origins. They knew that Jesus was a bastard child. And Isaiah 53 says, nothing about his appearance that we should be attracted to him. And again, now we, we are back into the heart of the gospel because the gospel is that God gave up his glory and became very ordinary. Heaven's son became Mary's son. In fact, I don't even know if you've ever even stopped to think about this, but, but, but think about this, that Jesus spent 30 years of his life in some small, obscure village living this very local, mundane life. And don't take this the wrong way, but he was just Jesus. Day after day, year after year, living in this small little shire, this little mundane life. And see, for those of us who want Jesus to be something like Clark Kent, big, strong, handsome, who can just kind of whip out his cape at any point, this is offensive. In fact, the word for event, offense in the original language is, is the word scandalon, 
Uh, Jesus' ordinariness is scandalous. See, now we're right back into what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is. The, the kingdom of heaven is this tiny seed. Jesus' greatness is actually in his smallness. His power is demonstrated in his weakness. And I wonder, like those words sound good to us, but how much have we really reflected upon them? Because this isn't a game. These aren't just nice things to say. This actually is what is when it comes to Christ. His power is manifested in his smallness, his weakness, his ordinariness. And see, this doesn't, this doesn't jive with, with, with our culture today, our American culture. I mean, we live in a celebrity attention-seeking, uh, status-obsessed culture today. And then here's Jesus. And see, if, if, if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to put Jesus on display, we must be a church. We must be disciples who can live faithfully into the mundane, the simple, the small, the non-celebrity, the things that get no attention. And I think this is a segue into the next segment of Mark. I hope you're not sleeping yet. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Second half of verse 6, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him. He began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over impure spirits. Let me also bring Mark chapter 3 into this because it almost reads the same. Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to them those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he named them apostles, sent ones to preach out the gospel, to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means son of, sons of thunder, and then the remaining 12 disciples. So this, these verses read just the same. And then picking up again with chapter 6, verse 8, these were the instructions then that he gave to the 12. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your wallet, wear sandals, no extra change of clothes, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out, they preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. It's God's word. Be seated. Okay, in both of these uh, 
text that I just read, um, and, and you know this, Jesus calls disciples, and, and now we are now getting a front row seat to his mission. Yes, a big part of Jesus' mission is everything that we celebrate during Lent, and it's all leading to Good Friday and Easter. Uh, that is a huge part of his mission, but another part of his mission that we oftentimes miss is that Jesus made disciples. And this would be a great time for our minds to ask this question, what's a disciple? Well, in the context that Jesus is making a disciple, because he's not alone in this, um, in that world, there are hundreds of rabbis uh, who are calling disciples uh, to themselves. Um, in this context, a disciple is someone who parks their life their very life behind a rabbi 24-7, 365. I mean, the most basic meaning of a disciple is someone who walks behind the rabbi. And the reason why they walk behind the rabbi is because they are learning the rabbi's path. They are learning his yoke. The yoke of a rabbi is the particular interpretation of God's word and how that gets walked out. So they're learning his teaching. But more specific to that, they are learning how to walk exactly as their rabbi walks. And to do that, a disciple has this passion inside of them, this total life commitment to become all that their rabbi is. Now, how do they do this? Well, that text in Mark chapter 3 spells it out. Jesus called to him those he wanted. They came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. That's how this works. They are with Jesus for three years. These guys will be with Jesus 24, 7, 365. Jesus will pour his life into these guys. And the classroom will be the storm. It will be going to the other side. It will be taking them to his hometown, Nazareth. They will spend every waking moment with Jesus, watching him like a hawk watching Jesus, how he does life, how he relates to his father, how he digests and walks out God's word, how he prays, how he worships, how he relates to the world, from children to the elderly, from his friends to his enemies. And think about this amazing thing that Jesus will say to them the night before he's crucified. He says, everything, everything I got from the Father, I gave it to you. He gave them his mission. He gave them his message. He gave them his path. He, he showed them how to walk that path. Everything that I got from the Father, he says, I gave it to you. And we see this in our text today. Jesus entrusts his whole movement, his mission, 
his message to these guys. And I don't have time to explain this right now, but only Peter is over 20 years old. The rest of these disciples are teenagers. And yet Jesus takes the keys to his kingdom and hands it to these yahoos. And look at verse 7. It says, Jesus gave them authority. Now, when I read a verse like this, my curiosity goes way up. Because I want to know what kind of authority did Jesus give them. So I look at verse 7. It says, well, he gave, gave them authority over impure spirits. The unclean. Verse 13, it says, they drove out many demons. They anointed many sick people with oil. And they healed them. Jesus gave these disciples his authority. So then my question is, on what basis do they have this authority? And this takes us all the way back to creation. Because when God created Adam and Eve, he actually gave them his authority. And, and, and we read about this in Genesis 1, but it even comes out maybe a little bit more succinctly in, in Psalm 8 when David is looking at the stars and, and, and saying, God, what am I? Who, what is man that you are mindful of him? And then he says, yet you have given him dominion over all things. You've put everything under his feet. That's exactly what God did at creation. He handed over the keys of the whole created order to Adam and Eve. And that's not just a game. That's not just semantics. Adam and Eve are put in charge of all creation. To rule and to subdue it as kings and queens. I mean, their place in the universe is awesome. And on what basis then did Adam and Eve have this authority? Well, Genesis 1 tells us Adam and Eve were made like God. Specifically, they were made in the image and likeness of God. In fact, that word image literally means statue or idol. They are these little replicas of God himself. This is why David in Psalm 8 says, God who am I? What is man? He first starts and he says, you have made us little less than the angels. But the problem with that translation is in the Hebrew, the word for angel there is Elohim. Elohim is the name for God. In other words, what David said is, God, who am I? You have made us a little less than God. We've been made like God. We've been made God-like for the simple purpose of showing off God to the world. Putting God on display. So that when creation looks at Adam and Eve, it was as if they were looking at God himself. And see, all of this was shattered at the fall. The image of God that God invested in every single human being was marred, it was shattered. 
But if you want to know the grand purpose of discipleship, because it's cosmic, through discipleship, Jesus is again making little replicas of himself. Little Christs. Through discipleship, Jesus is launching something as big as new creation. He's recreating these 12 young men. He's transforming them. He's restoring the image of God in them. This is why discipleship is at the heart of Jesus' mission. Because through it, Jesus is literally birthing a new humanity. A humanity that is restored to all that God intended when he created a human. A little less than God himself, like God, and restored to its rightful place in the universe as kings and queens. Why isn't discipleship happening? And, and you can read this, and, and you can question if these 12 men actually became like Jesus. But I'll argue with you that these 12 men went out and changed the world. And it's because they oozed this authority and it's not an authority that was derived from worldly success or position or wealth or status. It's, it's the power that's derived from being a man or woman who is passionately devoted to Jesus, to being with him and becoming like him. Where's that passion today? Do you know any disciples? Do you know anyone whose driving passion is to be with Jesus every day? To walk like Jesus, to walk Jesus' path at all costs, with all their heart. Do you know people today who just ooze this kind of spiritual authority? I mean, I think of Paul in, in Philippians 1 verse 20 where he says, my aim is, is that Christ would be magnified in my life. And he says, I don't, I, I don't care if I'm in chains. I, I, I don't care if, if I'm free. I just want Christ to be exalted. I, I, I want him to be put on full display through my life. So when people look at my life, all they can say is, Christ, Paul, your Christ is so awesome. I mean, that's, that's authority. That will change our world. I think there are several reasons why there are so few disciples today. First, where are the disciple makers? Where are the spiritual mothers and fathers like Paul who, who say to others, follow me as I follow Christ? But probably even going deeper into the root of the problem, I mean, we are Americans and, and, and we need to know like, like what has just been pushed into us in, in terms of our culture. Like, discipleship doesn't fit. It, it, it's, it's too local. It's too small. It's, it's too mundane. It's too slow. 
I mean, our church is so much like the world. We're just infatuated with instant. We're infatuated with shortcuts. We, we love big. We love big buildings. We love big stage, big audience. We love big personalities. We, we like celebrity. Now look at verse 8. Look at how much Jesus' mission requires. Hardly anything in terms of material and financial resources. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but no extra change of clothes. (laughs) Do you know another part in the story, like when God actually gives these same exact traveling instructions? takes us right back to Exodus. These are the same traveling instructions that God gave to the 12 tribes of Israel when they left slavery in Egypt to live as God's people in the promised land. I mean, we're not immersed in that part of our Bibles that much, but every Jew, even to this day, this is, this is the high point of their story. And, and to them, too, when they think about Egypt, Egypt is God's picture of slavery and And they would say, you know, we all know what it means to be a slave, slave to something. You can be a slave to your job. You can be a slave in a relationship. You can be slave to a substance, social media, sensuality. They'd say, that's Egypt. And Pharaoh and his armies, I mean, that's God's picture of the spiritual forces, uh, the powers and the principalities that seek to enslave and destroy us. And They don't want to let us go. And even when we are finally out, they're going to come after us. And the exodus, well, exodus simply means way out. It's it's the picture of the finger of God, of God setting his people free, of casting all those evil forces into the sea where they belong. And it's not just a way out of Egypt, but it's way into God. The 12 tribes, they would say, is God's picture of God's redeemed people. We passed through those waters. Those waters were like an umbilical cord. We, we left our old life as slaves, and we were born again into newness, into God. And yet all these stories, they, they, they all just point us to Jesus and that's why when we, when, when we see something like this and it connects us to one of those stories, we have to see the cosmic thing that, that Jesus is doing, even if it looks so small and ordinary and mundane. Through discipleship, Jesus is literally inaugurating new creation. He's launching a new exodus. He's making war to defeat the forces of evil, to set the captives free. And yes, he's going to do this through his death and resurrection. But he's also doing this through his mission to make disciples. And these 12 men changed the world. Because they unleashed the kingdom of God. And even Rome, Herod's, Caesar's, religion, even the gates of hell couldn't stand up to it. And why? Because these 12 young men became just like Jesus.
And church, we can't miss it. This is what we're called to. We are called to something this cosmic. To unleash new creation, to launch a greater exodus, to take on the forces of evil, to make war, to cast the demons into the sea by proclaiming Jesus and his kingdom. And there's a reason why Jesus and the early church chose to call this whole reality that we're talking about, they call it gospel. Because gospel in the first century is, is by that time an official day to speak of a historical, world-changing, life-altering event. For instance, the Battle of Marathon between the Persians and the Athenians. When Persia is about to destroy Greece once and for all, and as soon as those Athenians won that war, they said, we need to communicate the gospel. Rejoice, O oh Greece, we won. And something far greater than a historical battle has taken place in Christ. The most world-changing, life-altering event has occurred. A new age has dawned. That's why Jesus is sending them. Go tell. And this is why his last words to them before he ascends to heaven is go into all the world and, and preach my gospel, the good news that I've won that this new age has dawned, a new exodus, new creation is unleashed, that we're being set free from Egypt and we're rescued and we're brought into this beautiful new kingdom. And this is why right away, Mark, John, what's he doing? He's preaching and he's, he's telling people to repent this is why Jesus, his message is the kingdom. He's calling people to repent. Now he's telling the disciples, go from town and village. Uh, they're preaching the kingdom, calling people to repent. And what is repentance? It's this simple. It's the call to leave our old life as we know it in ourselves and to trust Jesus for a new one. And here's what I know. I know, you can go to, I know you can go to church all your life. I know you can hear sermon after sermon. I know you can be around Christians. You can even send your kids to Christian schools. But have you ever gotten down on your knees? Have you ever just prayed out to Jesus on your knees? Jesus, I am I'm so tired of living for myself. My life is so hollow and it's so empty from seeking the meaningless things of this world. Jesus, I'm done. I lay it all down. I give it all up. I resign from living for myself, trusting myself, promoting myself. Jesus, I turn to you. Here's my life. All of it. My past, my present, my future. My singleness, my sexuality, my marriage, my goals, my kids, my dreams, my hurts, my fears. Take it, Jesus. Here's my heart. You can actually do that right now. 
can we do that? Everything I'm talking about sounds silly. I'm surprised more people don't just get up and walk out. Until we leave our old life and trust Jesus for a new one, we'll never enter his kingdom. But when we do, if you noticed in Mark chapter 3, that passage, Jesus appointed them and then he named them or renamed them. And when Jesus names us, this is more than just attaching a label because in that world, your name is the very essence of who you are. It's, it's your identity. It's, it, it's your destiny. In fact, when God names something, it becomes exactly what God names it to be. So think about that story in our Old Testament when, when, when Jacob is wrestling with this stranger at night. And, and we come to find out that that stranger is God. Uh, God, Christ, pre-incarnate Christ. And they're wrestling And at some point in the wrestling, uh, Jesus says to him, what is your name? Jacob says, my name is Jacob. And Jacob means a liar, a deceiver, a cheat. It's something that Jacob has done his whole life, and he's become very good at it. And God then touches him, breaks his socket, which represents breaking the man. And he changes him. And he gives him a new name to reflect the change that God has so profoundly brought upon Jacob, who has now become Israel. I formed you, Jacob. I remade you, Israel. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. And here's the deal, until Christ gives us a new name, just like the people in his day, we will fight him. We will fight him because before Christ gives us everything, he demands from us everything. And before giving us life, new life, he demands our life. But when we finally surrender and trust him and repent, like, G, like uh, Jacob, Jesus is going to name us. And that change that that name represents is going to be so thoroughly complete that our understanding of who we are and what we are has changed forever. Can you give testimony to this? So you can sing like John Wesley. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. But this is just the beginning. Because if if repentance is how we enter the kingdom, then discipleship is how we participate in it. Are you participating in the kingdom? Does your life right now have authority? Again, I'm not talking about power. I'm not 
talking about status. I'm not talking about having money. I'm not talking about a title or a position. I'm talking about the kind of authority that simply comes from a life lived with Jesus. There's this stunning verse in Acts chapter 4, 4 verse 13, where the disciples are brought before the Supreme Court. Again, these yahoos, these teenagers... And the Supreme Court of that day are looking at these disciples and they're saying they're unschooled, they're ordinary. But they were amazed. And then it says, because they took note, these men had been with Jesus. Now how can we be with Jesus today? It's through this daily pursuit of him. A disciple is someone who loves the word. A disciple is someone who digests the word, lives the word, so they can walk the word. They pray the word. They sing the word. They proclaim the word. They die the word. Why? Because Jesus did. And this is where Jesus is. This is where Jesus has placed himself. A disciple also prays. Prayer is the way that we bring Christ into our lives. I mean, we are living east of Eden, but but the way that we get to get back into Eden is through prayer. And God is such a gentleman. He's he's not going to step in until we ask. But if we would just get back to praying, even just simple prayers like, God, help me, God, fill me, God, break me, God, mold me, use me. I mean, I think about what, what, what God did with Adam and Eve. Not only did he make them like himself in his very image, but then he gave the keys of all creation to them. He said, rule it and subdue it. The word subdue is literally to beat it into shape. And how are we going to beat our world into shape? A shape that conforms to the goodness of God. Through prayer. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. May your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. On earth as it is in heaven. God, may your kingdom come to my marriage. God, may your, may your kingdom come to my neighbor whose life has fallen apart. God, may, may, may your kingdom come to my coworkers. God, may your kingdom come to my neighborhood. God, may your kingdom come to the city, to the specific aspects of the city that are broken. This is how we take our rightful place in the universe as kings and queens who are ruling and subduing this world for Christ. Are you a disciple? I don't want that question to guilt anyone. I want that question to make you excited. Have you heard his call? Have you heard him say to you, come follow me. Walk after me. Become like me. 
Are you following him? Are you walking his path? Do you even know his path? Are you sitting at his feet and drinking in his words thirstily? We talk a lot about Jesus being our Lord. We talk a lot about Jesus being our Savior. But my question today is, is he your rabbi? Because if Jesus is my rabbi, it means that I am his disciple. And if I am his disciple, it means my life is consumed with him and consumed with becoming like him. And I think the question that Dawson Trotman asked in the 70s is still applicable today. Where are your men, where are your women, who have a love for God, who know God's word, who are walking God's path, and who are saying to the next generation, come, follow me, as I follow Christ. The church needs this. Our church needs it. God, we don't want to play church. God, I pray more than ever that for this church, we would not be about buildings and budgets. That we would not be about titles, positions. God, that we would become disciples who are making disciples. Let that be, Jesus, for the advancement of your kingdom in our world, in our time. Amen.